Hi, my name is Nina Bosky, and I'm the host of a special investigation series of Maryland Behind the Icon during the 60th anniversary of the star's death, where we'll look into the mystery and break down for you, the audience, of what the facts are versus the lies around the star that have been plaguing her for over six decades. We have some of the top Maryland experts with me on the panel. Gary Vitaco Robles, icon, lifetimes in films of Marilyn Monroe, and April Via Via, now Chambers, Marilyn Monroe, A Day in the Life, and Donald McGovern, Murder Orthodoxies, a non-conspiracy view of Marilyn Monroe's death. Each week, we will break down for you what is fact, what is probable theory, and what is outlandish rumor. This week, what we're going to do is to go right to the source. In this episode of Dr. Doctor, we will bring back the Goodnight Maryland expert panel, Gary Vitaka Robles and Mary Jane Gray, to discuss Maryland's medications and to recap her suicide attempt so you can understand her acute mental illness. When you have an acute mental illness, which she did have, happiness and sadness go hand in hand, sometimes within minutes of each other. So we're also going to hear from Dr. Reef Kareem, an addiction specialist and psychiatrist who has treated many celebrities. So you're going to hear firsthand the doctor's involvement. Even back in 1962, the standards were different, but there are certain things that they should have caught. And one of the things that you'll hear him say right on this show is the best prediction of impulsive suicide attempts is past suicidal attempts. And we now know that Marilyn had several past suicide attempts that we know of that we can confirm. One at 24, when her main mentor and agent, Johnny Hyde, died. And if you think about Marilyn's lack of father figure, her instability that was crucial to her foundation in life, You could see how she was already coming into this world fragmented. She also attempted suicide when she had a miscarriage with Arthur Miller at age 33 and then was institutionalized at age 34 when she divorced Arthur Miller. And for those of you who have not listened to the dramatic episodes, I'm going to invite you to go back to the launch of the dramatic episode where Marilyn actually is institutionalized. It really humanizes her and it takes her out of this iconic state to really understanding the human side of Marilyn Monroe. As we launch this week's episode, I'm going to ask Gary Vitaka Robles to help us understand Marilyn's suicide packs that she had with various people. Now, is this true, Gary? Well, I'm aware of three packs that she made with her poet friend, Norman Rostin, and her former press agent, Rupert Allen, and also Lee Strasberg. And Norman Rostin talks about being with Marilyn at a house party in New York where she's looking out the window at the Brooklyn Bridge, and he was concerned about her, and she made a comment about it being a long drop. She was very depressed that night, and so um, he tried to cheer her up, and they made a pact that they would make an attempt to contact each other if they were ever having those thoughts. She made a similar pact in Reno while she was filming The Misfits in 1960 with Rupert Allen, and he was her press representative before Patricia Newcomb. 
And this was probably done on the bridge over the Truckee River in Reno where they were filming because the suicide pact they made had a code word, which would be Truckee River. And the only other one I'm aware of is her acting coach, Lee Strasberg. He had asked her to contact him if she ever had those indications because she had been over-medicated while a guest at his house. He and his wife were very concerned about her. Interesting. Certainly at that time, there were obvious uh, signs that she could be mentally unstable at certain times. But I think that's really interesting when we look at the doctor's role and what they knew and didn't know, especially when prescribing these heavy, heavy lethal drugs. So let's just break it down real quick. Dr. Greenson was her psychiatrist. Dr. Siegel was the studio doctor at Fox that and he did indeed prescribe her drugs as well. But Dr. Engelberg, Hyman Engelberg, was her main internist, and Dr. Greenson and Dr. Engelberg agreed that Dr. Engelberg would be the one that prescribed her medicine. Dr. Engelberg was going through a nasty divorce, and they were supposed to be in constant contact about her drug intake. Well, that didn't always happen. It certainly didn't happen the night she died. Eunice Murray, even knowing that Marilyn sometimes would overtake her drugs and not know it and told her to keep an eye out for her for that very reason. We are now going to continue the conversation as we're going to add Dr. Reef Kareem, psychiatrist and addiction specialist. He is a leader and pioneer in the fields of general psychology and mental health. Welcome, Dr. Reef. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it's good to have you here. It's an important component, as I was saying, and let's just jump right into some of the questions that we have. Mary Jane, you wanted to talk about the Nebutal and the chloral hydrate. Yeah, I wanted to ask, what were her doctors thinking by prescribing both Nebutal and chloral hydrate simultaneously? In modern day psychiatry, what are the ethical ramifications of prescribing like that? The big picture here is that she was on a lot of medications that slow respiratory drive. And that's really the bottom line. Back then, there's two types of medicine that are prescribed in psychiatry. There's very cosmetic, cutting edge, looking at the right medication for the right person if you need meds on top of, you know, psychotherapy and other things. And then there's kind of the throw the meds against the wall and see what sticks kind of mentality, which I highly don't recommend, but sounds like was the case here. When you've got celebrity behavior, you, you've got someone who's well-known, they get special care. They don't necessarily get good care. And the special care means I'm in pain or I need to sleep or I'm really stressed out. Give me something. Give me something right now. Give me something. Give me something. Give me something. So the doctors have a lot of pressure on them to prescribe. In this case, you're looking at chloral hydrate, which is an old-school sleeping medication that has a long half-life that doesn't necessarily interact that well with other medications. And then you've got different barbiturates. You've got, you know, the secondol, the nembutol, you've got tuinol, you've got a large number of barbiturates which also slow the respiratory drive. Barbiturates are like an old school version of the sedative hypnotics we have now. The Xanaxes and Ativans and Clonopins. Back then, people used to use barbiturates much more. Now, when you combine these medications, you've got a really high risk of overdose, a really high risk of respiratory depression, and then when you're not breathing, you end up going into cardiac arrest. So when you hear a lot of these celebrities, like I've been interviewed many times on everyone from Michael Jackson to Heath Ledger to Whitney Houston, when there is an overdose, you tend to get the cause of death as cardiac arrest. 
but it's because of the respiratory depression associated with these medications. In this case, taking Nebutal and chloral hydrate together is really problematic, and especially because they both have long half-lives. The Nebutal half-life is between 15 and 48 hours. So imagine you're in pain, you take a medication or you're stressed out or you want to sleep. You take one medication, it's got a 40-some-hour half-life. And then you're like, well, I still can't sleep or I'm still stressed out. So then you ask for a different medication on top of it that also has a really long half-life. You're just looking at the subjective experience of did it work or did it not work, but you're not thinking about the stacking effect of what these medications could have from a side effect profile. Would Dr. Engelberg back in his day know that? The half-life is the half-life. And I think when pharmaceutical companies make medications and they get approved to be legitimate medication, they have to have a certain amount of data there. And that data includes their half-life and their side effect profile. Now, it's not going to be as voluminous as it is now or comprehensive as it is now, but you're still going to have basic measures there to get approved. So yeah, the doctors would absolutely have known that. You know, there's 900 pills here that she was prescribed in two months, 700 of them being sedatives. They were saying, and they claimed soon after her death, that they were weaning her off the drugs. What would you say to that? Yeah, that's that's BS. I mean, To say, to give somebody, yeah, I don't know the exact numbers of pills, so I'm just going to believe you on it, but 700 pills over that kind of time period is totally ridiculous. We call it polypharmacy, where somebody just, they just keep giving and giving and giving pills and not thinking about the responsibility or the accountability of a patient. There's a big difference between giving somebody medications that does not have a mental health disorder. Like, let's say somebody has a chronic pain issue, but they're not identified as a chronic pain patient. Like, they had an acute injury, and it's lingering, and they still need some meds. You could give them, hopefully, a shorter supply of meds, not giving 100 pills at a time or a couple hundred pills at a time. But also, you've got these diagnoses of bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder which means there might be erratic mental health in addition, which means they might not take their meds appropriately, especially if they're in a manic phase or a depressed phase or a borderline crisis. Yeah, I was looking through all the meds, and there's no mood stabilizer that I've seen in her medication regimen. There's Parnate, which is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor and an antidepressant, but that medication, if given to somebody who has bipolar disorder, can actually trigger them or switch them into a manic episode because it's not a true mood stabilizer. It's an antidepressant that can actually make you worse and and move you into a manic phase. So if she's in a manic phase, she's going to take whatever pills that she feels like taking. If she's in a borderline crisis, a lot of borderlines attempt suicide. doesn't mean they complete it, but they might feign suicide. And then with the number of pills you've got here, this could easily, easily have been an accidental overdose. So that's a good transition into our next question, Gary. Hi, Dr. Reef. I've got to preface my question with the fact that Marilyn seems to have had the symptoms consistent with borderline personality on the bipolar spectrum, and I don't think she was accurately diagnosed at the time on the bipolar spectrum. But I'm aware of recent studies showing that 95% of completed suicide victims do have a mental illness, and in 25% of those making near-fatal attempts, the actual decision to end their lives occurs less than five minutes before the attempt, and for 70%, they make the decision within an hour of the attempt. So I'm asking your opinion regarding a hypomanic, manic, or mixed episode possibly 
playing into Marilyn, executing an impulsive suicide at this point in her life? What I would say is that, first off, it might be an accidental overdose. But if it was to be an impulsive act of suicide, the best way to predict suicidal behavior is past suicide attempts. That's the first thing. And the second thing is impulsivity is absolutely increased by substances, by alcohol or some other altered substance or some kind of neurochemical shift in the brain. And very often, borderline personality leads to higher levels of impulsivity, problematic serotonin levels. There's a serotonin metabolite, which low levels of it predicts a higher level of impulsivity. And a manic state or hypomanic state uh, elicits higher levels of impulsivity and poor impulse control. So absolutely, that is correct. If she was in that state of mind, she would have a much higher level of uh, impulsivity. Yeah, we have a question about the chloral hydrate because not all of it was taken. You know, we were wondering about 17 chloral hydrates. Would it have rendered her disoriented? Could we determine how many she would have needed to fall asleep or pass out? Because it didn't seem to be in a fatal level. That seemed to be more of a toxic level. You know, it's hard to know because 17 chloral hydrates on their own, depending on the person, if the person doesn't have tolerance to the medication, then that can be a significant amount. Toxic versus fatal, probably leaning more towards toxic, but you never know. If they're giving 17 chloral hydrates on top of Nebutal or some other meds that also cause respiratory depression and you've got med-med interactions, then all bets are off. That could be a fatal level. I think we would have to assume she had a high tolerance because she was being prescribed 100 at a time within short periods of time between the prescriptions. You know, if there's a lot of different medications in the system, then you have all sorts of med-med interaction uh, possibilities. Dr. Reef, if you had seen a similar case to Marilyn's today with the same prescribing practices, what would be the ramifications and accountability of the doctors? There is a lot more accountability on doctors now. They're getting civilly prosecuted. They're getting criminally prosecuted for prescribing, being a prescribing mill or over-prescribing to the point where it's not within the realm of possibility. So now doctors are being scrutinized by looking at the amount of pills. Uh, and if somebody's on 700 medications that are all related to barbiturates or benzodiazepine sedipsognotics or some other kind of you know, medication that's going to cause respiratory depression, they would be at a very minimum flagged and looked at by the DEA and at a maximum potentially prosecuted in, in today's culture because it's a, it's a different world that we live in. I'll try to summarize it. The doctors are even more culpable because they had a history of this. You've got an episode in 61 of, the, of a major depressive episode. You've got another one in 62. They, they had nurses at her place. They thought she was suicidal potentially at that point. You have a suicide prevention team. I mean, yeah, you didn't have anti-craving meds, so to speak, at that time. And she was not a mood stabilizer, which is really weird because you would think she would be on that medication because that's what you need to contain the bipolar disorder. But the combination of bipolar disorder and borderline personality, if she truly has those, make her very, very unpredictable and very impulsive. And you have a suicide prevention team, yet you're prescribing her a whole bunch of medications that could kill her. 
you know, as opposed to medications that are a little safer on an overdose, you're giving her a whole bunch of meds that could kill her on an overdose. Yeah, it's just a bad recipe for somebody who might have suicidal thoughts. The other thing that I'll say is this is a true dual diagnosis case. And I agree with the other panelists that if she was really in a major depressive episode right before the death, then she wouldn't take care of herself. She, she wouldn't care how she was found. She wouldn't want to get out of bed. And she wouldn't really care about anything around her and might see the only way out as, you know, taking a whole bunch of pills. Based on what you know now, suicide, accidental, or undetermined, based on what we talked about today? It's so hard to know this. I mean, when I look at the evidence in some ways, I think accidental overdose because she was on so many meds that she was probably in some emotional pain and was on a ton of meds. But when you put, this, this is the dual diagnosis part, when you put together the uh, borderline personality where a lot of people attempt suicide and the bipolar disorder that was unregulated because she wasn't on a mood stabilizer, then, you know, you could almost look at like a dual diagnosis based suicide, which could also be accidental because she was unmanaged for her mental health problems. But it could just as easily be a suicide attempt. I could see evidence for all three. There you have it, Dr. Reef Kareem, a very famous celebrity addiction specialist and psychiatrist, giving you an understanding not only about the medications prescribed to Marilyn, but how her mental health could have led to an overdose or an impulsive suicide. You've heard a lot over this season with Gary Vitaco Robles talking about mental health. Over the years, Gary and I have done several episodes around bipolar and borderline personality as it relates to Marilyn Monroe. And we've talked a lot about Marilyn's patterns and how the doctors have played a role in Marilyn's death. Well, next week, we end the season with a Netflix breakdown of the mystery of Marilyn Monroe, the unheard tapes. You don't want to miss this episode because you will hear for yourself and be able to witness how facts and fiction get blended to tell a sensational story. I'd like to thank my Maryland expert panel and Dr. Reef Kareem. I'm Nina Boski for Behind the Icon. The truth will be known. <laughs>